Let's uh, say thank you to Daniel Gilbert. Thank you for being here with us. He is a brother from our dear sister church, First Evan. We're praying for your church as you look for a pastor, as you wait on the Lord's leading. It's good to be back with you. I've been gone a couple of weeks in case you haven't missed me. And um, I miss you. I miss you when we're gone. My whole family misses you uh, when we're gone. And uh, we've had quite an eventful summer. I've been to two general assemblies, one here at EPC, one the PCA in St. Louis. And then uh, I was told by Sandy Wilson to go uh, supply a pulpit that he couldn't supply in St. Louis. So you always do what Sandy does, says to do. And then from there, I spoke to the youth, which was the highlight of my summer. Uh, we're so blessed with our students and under the direction of Will Neese and, and Mary Rain. And uh, we studied Habakkuk uh, together, and they listened to it, and uh, we learned a lot of things in Habakkuk. And then study week last week, and now back here. I am so glad to be back. I had the foolish idea of thinking last week. I took a half-day break from study, and I thought I should, I should water ski again. It's been a long time since I've skied on a slalom ski, and well, I did that. But for the last several days, I wondered if I'd ever walk again. So <clears throat> if I'm less animated today, it's because I was foolish. Revelation chapter 11, verses 1 through 14 is our text for study. I remind you of our, of our evening service. Uh, Todd is preaching this evening. It's shortened service where we celebrate the Lord's Supper. And uh, there's a great place for you to meet the officers of your church. We have different services, so you don't always know who the deacons and elders are. And since we all commit to attending the evening service, here is a place you can meet them. And, and in the coming weeks, you'll be uh, looking at nominations. And since those who are agreeing to serve as elder and deacon commit to coming morning and evening, here's a place you can get to know those officers as well. It's a wonderful way to bookend your day with worship. But this morning, we are studying Revelation as we have been for some time, and we take up the first 14 verses of chapter 11. And it is another strange passage, especially a strange passage if the Bible is new to you or if the Old Testament is new to you, and that's okay. We are here to study and make God's Word plain. But I have to warn you as we dive into this study that even the great Henry Alford, a great commentator on the book of Revelation, said this, no solution has been given to this portion of prophecy. <laughs> No satisfying solution of interpretation has been given to this portion of prophecy, is what Henry Alford said. But God's Word is sufficiently plain to tell us what we need for life and godliness, and I think you will conclude that as well if we make these passages as clear as they need to be. We begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 11. <clears throat> I was given a measuring rod like a staff. And I was told, rise and measure the temple of God and the altar and those who worship there. But do not measure the court outside the temple. Leave that out, for it is given over to the nations, and they will trample the holy city for 42 months. 
And I will grant authority to my two witnesses, and they will prophesy for 1260 days clothed in sackcloth. These are the two olive trees and the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. They have the power to shut the sky that no rain may fall during the days of their prophesying, and they have power over the waters to turn them into blood and to strike the earth with every kind of plague as often as they desire. And when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom in Egypt where their Lord was crucified. For three and a half days, some from the peoples and tribes and languages and nations will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. And those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet, and great fear fell on those who saw them. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. And they went up to heaven in a cloud, and their enemies watched them. And at that hour, there was a great earthquake, and a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, and the rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Brothers and sisters, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. There is a great hero's tale that has been made famous of late by film called The Lord of the Rings. J.R.R. Tolkien was a Christian along with C.S. Lewis and others committed to Christ and committed to making their faith known in their particular disciplines. And Tolkien wrote his series, The Lord of the Rings, uh, as a true story. He's very insistent that it not be regarded as an allegory because he said, I'm telling the truth. I'm telling true things. I'm describing reality, but I'm using different words, different names for it. There is a Christ-like figure named Gandalf. You don't have to know anything about the story. You don't have to have read the books or, or watched the movies to get the basic idea because it is an epic battle between good and evil because, after all, he's telling the truth about the world, which is an epic battle between good and evil, the forces of Christ against the forces of the evil one. And the forces of good are represented by Gandalf, a Christ-like figure, who has a not-so-impressive army of little people who are about three feet, six inches tall with hair on their feet. And he leads them into battle. He is more striking as one who might be a leader. He's tall. He has a big staff. He has flowing white hair. 
And the, the evil one, the picture of Satan is Mogroth, who has a demon who pursues these little, these little people named the Balrog. The Balrog is everything that you would envision a demon to be. Dazzling eyes, flame-breathing, horned creature, scales, terrifying. He pursues a little band across a land bridge, a narrow, narrow land bridge. Gandalf sends the little ones across, and he stands, and he turns, and he faces the Balrog. And he says, famously, you cannot pass. I am the servant of the secret fire. You cannot pass. The, the dark fire will not avail you. You cannot pass. Go back. You cannot pass. And he plunges his staff into the earth. And a shockwave of power blasts the Balrog, knocks him off of the narrow land bridge and into the bottomless, fiery pit. And when you read about it, when you watch it on film, you start to take a breath and say, whew, that was a close one. And just before you can finish your breath, the tail of the Balrog comes up and wraps its fiery tendrils around Gandalf and drags him into the fiery abyss. appears he's gone, that all hope is lost. But if you keep reading, there's another battle. And when all hope seems to be lost for these little creatures, Gandalf appears in resurrection-like clothing. And he says, from the lowest dungeon to the highest peak, I fought the Balrog of Mogroth. Until at last I threw down my enemy and smote his ruin upon the mountainside. Darkness took me and I strayed out of thought and time. Stars wheeled overhead and every day was as long as the life of the age of the earth. I've been sent back until my task is done. Jesus could have said those words. Jesus did say those words. Those words are especially clear in the rest of this chapter in verses 17 and 18 when we will thank God, the Lord Almighty, who is and was and who is to come, for you have taken your great power and you have begun to reign. The nations raged, but you defeated them, and the kingdoms of this world and of have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. Remember we've said over and over, as strange as the book of Revelation may sound and may appear to you, you keep this big idea. Here is the story. Jesus wins. And Jesus wins because He has been raised from the dead and He rules and reigns at the right hand of God and will not cease until He has put all enemies under His feet and if you're on His side, under your feet too. Now we've been studying an interlude in one of these series of sevens and we said in the interlude 
that uh, John is saying, now here's what you do in the meantime. We know that that everything has occurred just as God said it would in the past of redemptive history. And here is what is going to happen in the future. Jesus is going to win. So what do we do in the meantime? That's the interlude. And we are in the meantime. So what do we do in the meantime? It's redundant, but uh, we have to retell this gospel, which is we must persevere in believing the gospel, persevere in proclaiming the gospel. We must persevere. And our text tells us specifically that we persevere with the power of the Holy Spirit. We we persevere through persecution. We persevere until we are publicly vindicated. Look at the first six verses. Why do we persevere? We persevere because if Christ is our Lord and Savior, we're on the winning side. We persevere specifically because he has given us all the power we need and very particularly through the gift of the Holy Spirit. You say, where in the world do you get that in these first six verses? Well, look at them. We'll unpack them. Notice, first of all, this encouragement that we will persevere through the power of the Holy Spirit because the Holy Spirit is sent to preserve us. I was given a measuring rod, verse 1. I was giving a measuring rod like a staff, and I was told, rise and measure the temple of God, the altar, and those who worship there. Three things. He said, uh, you you go and measure these things. The altar, the temple of God, and the people of God. Now, remember, we say as we're studying the book of Revelation, we're also studying the Old Testament. And so we think, where in the world in the Old Testament is there this description of of a measuring rod. And we know a couple of places. There's one in Ezekiel, and there's, uh, there's some measuring going on in Zechariah. But, but this is, <clears throat> this, only these three things are found in one chapter, Leviticus 16. Only in Leviticus 16 are the Old Testament worshiper, the priest, told to measure the temple, the altar, the people of God, and one more thing, the high priest. Now, by measuring, they meant this is an accreditation study. Every week you're to go and you're to, you're to see if everything is up to snuff, if it's up to God's standards. Is the priest dressed the way he's supposed to be dressed? Is the altar outfitted the way it's supposed to be? Is the, uh, is the temple appointed appropriately? Are the worshipers coming appropriately? And where they are not, and inevitably something was wrong, then here are the specific atonements that are to be made. Here is the way blood is to be shed to atone for the priest and the temple and the altar and the people. Now, there is one person who is not mentioned in this, who is mentioned in Leviticus 16. It's, it's the high priest. There's no need to mention the high priest because the Lord Jesus is the high priest. And the Lord Jesus is perfect. And, and, and there is the gospel in a word that the only way that we can be found right before God, the only way that we can stand before Him, the only way we can persevere, the only way we can appear before Him in heaven is for that high priest to take our place, that perfect high priest who made the perfect sacrifice with His own blood. And if that is true, if, if the high priest has satisfied everything that we need for righteousness, then why is this measuring rod continued? Why is it, a, why is it applied? 
What is lacking? Nothing is lacking. This measuring rod is no longer for finding out what's wrong with us. This measuring rod is entirely for the sake of assuring us that everything is just as it is supposed to be, and Jesus will lose none of it. The altar is just as it is supposed to be. Everything has been put on the altar. The once-for-all sacrifice has been made. There is nothing left there. So this measuring rod says, look, it's absolutely perfect. Everything you need to stand before God has been satisfied. This measuring rod applied to the people of God is to assure us that He's not going to lose any one of us. That he is constantly taking account of us. He is constantly adding to his family. He is not going to lose any for whom he has died. This This is emphasized by one of these numbers. 42 months. Now, we don't make up things to, to apply to these numbers. We look, here's what you can do. You, you, you study this for yourself. You look in your concordance, and you say, where does the number 42 appear in Scripture? And when you look at the number 42, you find it particularly in the Exodus. When the people came out of Egypt, the, the, Moses gathered them into camps, and, and God says, number them. Make sure they're all here. And he counts, and there are 42. Everybody was there. Everybody who was supposed to come out of Egypt was there. You, you dial back in the book of Revelation and you say, what's the big idea? The big idea is Jesus preserves us with His righteousness. He's made the perfect sacrifice. He is the perfect high priest. He has prepared the perfect temple for us. He is the one who is, will give an account for us. Nothing will be lost. There's the good news. And he's going to assure it by the provision of the Holy Spirit who empowers us to proclaim the Word. Where do I get that? Verses 4 and 5. These are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that stand before the Lord of the earth. And if anyone would harm them, fire pours out from their mouth and consumes their foes. If anyone would harm them, this is how he is doomed to be killed. Now you'll say, what about these 1260 days and all of that business? You know, I've seen all kinds of interpretations for 1260 days and time times and half a times and three and a half days and so forth. It's in Daniel as well. All kinds of interpretations, and they're all different. And again, we have to back up and ask, what is the big idea? When God makes these specific, He names these specific days and months and years, here is the big idea. God has the days numbered and He's going to bring them to an end. God has the days numbered. He doesn't wake up and He says, I wonder what's going to happen in my world today. He never does that. He looks at His calendar and He says, well, from the foundation of the world, I plan that this is going to happen on this day. And that's what happens. And then there comes a day when He turns His calendar and He says, well, today is the end. Today is the end of redemption. Today is the day I'm going to save the last person whom I've died for, and then I'm going to bring an end to this, and I'm going to put the world back together, and we're going to live into all of eternity. God has the days numbered, and they will come to an end. And he says, in the meantime, you are to spread the good news. You're to share the gospel. And you're going to do it with the power of the Holy Spirit. Where in the world is the power of the Holy Spirit? It's in verse 4. 
the two olive trees and the two lampstands. Now, an Old Testament uh, reader, someone who grew up with the Old Testament would say, ah, I know what these are. These are, the, these are the two olive trees, the two lampstands that are found in Zechariah chapter 4. And he's, he's mentioned these earlier in the book of Revelation as well. <clears throat> and in that vision of Zechariah, there were two, there were two lampstands, like you find a lampstand in the, in the temple has seven candlesticks on it. And there were two of them. One was seven over here, one was seven, or, or there's a candlestick, seven, uh, seven uh, candlesticks. And each of those fed with seven conduits of oil being pumped from an olive tree. In other words, this candlestick, each candlestick would never run out of oil and never quit burning because it had seven sources of oil. What's the big idea? The Holy Spirit is the oil. The Holy Spirit is the power that the church will never fail. The church will never quit retelling the gospel until Jesus comes back. Why? Because the Holy Spirit keeps empowering us. The Holy Spirit keeps pouring the oil on the fire. John Bunyan in that, that, uh, that allegory of the Christian life he wrote in the 1600s has an image of this. He, he says he goes into this house, a house of the interpreter, and uh, he sees this man in the front of a fireplace, and he keeps pouring water on the coals, but the, the fire keeps burning. And uh, Bunyan says, what in the world's happening here? And he said, well, come around here behind the, behind the fireplace. And here's another man who keeps pouring oil on the fire. And the man who's pouring oil on the fire, that's the Holy Spirit. The man who keeps pouring water on the fire is the devil. And the devil never can snuff out the gospel because the Holy Spirit keeps empowering it, fueling it with oil. Don't quit sharing the gospel. There's the application. Do not quit sharing the gospel. Keep bringing up the conversation with your colleagues at work. Keep bringing it up in your families. Keep praying for them. Keep talking to your neighbor. Over the next year, we're going to take the church to our neighborhoods. We're going to move into our neighborhoods with the gospel. And when your elder and deacon say, would you please go out into your neighborhood? Would you reach out to your fellow second presbyters? Would you reach out to your lost neighbors? Then as timid as you might be, you imagine the Holy Spirit pouring fire, pouring oil on your fire. And you say, I'm going to go with that power. I'm going to tell the good news. There's all kinds of opposition against it, but it will never fail. We don't, we're not literally given the power in verse 6 to shut the sky and cause rain not to fall and plagues to come, but this is descriptive of the consequences that come to people or will come to people who do not receive the gospel. They bring this judgment on themselves, difficulties, pain, suffering, eventually eternal suffering if they don't turn to Christ. We go through persecution. We go through trials and suffering as well. Our trials and suffering are to, to make us more like Christ. They have a purposeful end. Their trials and suffering, those who are outside the temple, outside the people of God, their trials are to, to encourage them, to repent, to drive them back to the gospel. 
We share the gospel. We plead with people, come to Christ. You don't want to face these things purposelessly. You don't want to face judgment without Christ. Come to Christ, we plead. Nothing should discourage us from that. You know, in the last few decades, we have, we have learned about persecution that came to Christians in particular in New Guinea. In the 1940s, when the Japanese took over New Guinea and cruelly uh, went through that, that country, that island, killing anyone who would not submit and especially hunting down and killing Christians, Christians began to flee. And uh, the, the bishop of New Guinea, the Anglican bishop, Philip Towner, uh, Philip uh, Strong, said to his Anglican uh, priest and the, the members of the church, don't flee, don't leave. Many will say we are foolish, but don't leave. Stay there and proclaim the gospel. And if they call us fools, we are fools for Christ's sake. We have very moving testimonies, even radio communications of young missionaries telling their parents, pleading with their parents, please don't make me come home. Let me stay. Every one of them hunted down and killed. Vivienne Ridlick was one uh, missionary was engaged to a woman named May Hartman. She was a nurse. They were to be married. And even after the Japanese said that all the women could leave the island, Mary uh, refused to leave. And uh, she insisted on staying with her fiancé and insisted on continuing to do her work in the name of Christ. Vivian was tracked down and persecuted. His interpreter, Tapidi, tried to stand up for him. Lucian Tapidi tried to stand up for him. Don't kill this man. He's done much good. And they killed not only Vivian, but they killed Lucian Tapidi too. They brained him with an axe. And then they turned and went after his fiance. after after the missionary's fiance. They went after another nurse. They went after a six-year-old son till they'd killed the Christians. But they stayed. And they kept preaching the good news. Don't quit. What's the worst that's going to happen to you? Your friends are going to turn on you. They're going to put you out of the garden club. They're going to put you out of your fraternity, your sorority, out of make fun of you in the locker room. Kick you out of your social circles. Call you a fanatic behind your back. Or kill you. Don't quit. You say, how can I do that? Verses 7 to 10. You persevere with the power of the Holy Spirit through persecution by faith. 
Now, I think that one reason interpreters say we just can't make, we just can't figure out what's going on in this chapter is because verses 7 through 10 are so disturbing. I'm not going to spare you of it. I'm called to tell you the truth. I don't like what I read here either, but we have to study it. This is what's going to happen. They're going to kill us. Verse 7, when they have finished their testimony, that is, when all the Christians, when all the Christians have finished their testimony, they've witnessed to the last person, and God saves the last person, the beast that is the Antichrist. Not a lot about the beast, not a lot about about the Antichrist, not clear whether it's a person or whether it's a force, whether it's a political power, whether whether it's a worldview, but it's called a beast. It's called the Antichrist. Rises from the bottomless pit and will make war on them, that is on the Christians who are left, and conquer them and kill them, every one of them. And their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. As best I can tell, you study this yourself, the word is that the Lord will someday, after the last person has been saved, He's going to remove His hand, He's going to unleash the Antichrist, whatever that force is, and He's going to, he's going to allow every Christian alive at the time to be killed, wiped off the face of the earth. Total war on Christians. And then to mock them, verse 9, the three and a half days, some of the peoples of tribes, language, and nation will gaze at their dead bodies and refuse to let them be placed in a tomb. Let their bodies rot in the street. And verse 10, and those who dwell on the earth will rejoice over them and make merry and exchange presents because these two prophets had been a torment to those who dwell on the earth. You hear that even now, don't you? These Christians are a nuisance to us. They just won't keep their mouths shut. They ruin our fun. They have to pour a wet blanket on everything. They make us feel guilty. They're so narrow-minded. They're so unloving. Let's get rid of them. Shut them up. The day will come, it seems to me, that total war will be unleashed on Christians And they won't even give them the dignity of burial. They'll let them lie in the street for three and a half days, whatever length of period, whatever period of time that symbolizes. The day will come when it will appear that the devil has finally won. And for a brief time anyway, the devil and all of those who follow him on earth and under the earth will rejoice. We have finally gotten rid of those nuisance Christians. It appeared that way in New Guinea. All the Christians were killed. It appeared that all the work that had been done in in evangelization in New Guinea, the incredible mission work of bringing the gospel to a people who had never heard of Jesus before, wiped out in just a couple of years. But, verse 11, oh, how redemptive is this little conjunction in Scripture. But, 
all hope seems to be lost. They're rejoicing over the defeat of Christians. But after the three and a half days, a breath of life from God entered them, and they stood up on their feet. Ah, they made a mistake of leaving those bodies in the street where everybody could see them come to life. And great fear fell on those who saw them. You bet it did and will. Then they heard a loud voice from heaven saying to them, come up here. We know what that loud voice is. It's in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. It's the loud voice of the trumpet call of God when Jesus comes back and he says, children, come home. Those who are here lying above the face of the earth, come home. Those who are under the earth, come home. I'm raising your bodies to life. Fear falls on all the earth. They went up to heaven in a cloud. Their enemies watched them. At that hour, there was a great earthquake, great earthquake. Throughout Scripture is always God saying, I have the last word. And a tenth of the city fell. 7,000 people were killed in the earthquake, but not all of them were killed. The rest were terrified and gave glory to the God of heaven. That doesn't mean that they all came to Christ. The judgment has already occurred. It means instead that he kept these alive so that they were forced to give an eyewitness to all of God's cosmic enemies. Yes, we saw with our own eyes that though we thought we had defeated Christ and his followers once and for all, they came to life. They were resurrected. Christ brought them to himself, and we are forced to give glory to God in heaven. Jesus wins. Which side are you on? Which side will you be on? Regardless of how difficult it is right now, regardless of how much you think it will cost you, better to be called a fanatic, better to be called a fool today than to be called a fool and humiliated in that great day. Better to pay the price now so that you participate on the winning side in that which is to come. There's more to that story in New Guinea. All hope seemed to be lost. But as you know, the Japanese did not win that war. The gospel went back to that island. The gospel still is present there. And uh, it was later found out that Vivian, that missionary who was engaged to that nurse, that the, the reason, the way they found him, he was, he was in hiding. And the way they found him was that he was turned over by a sorcerer named Imbogi. Imbogi sold him out. But after the war, Imbogi became a Christian. The gospel conquered Imbogi, a man who was demon-possessed, became a Christian. And he told the authorities, I deserve to be executed for the crimes I've committed, and he was. 
And then what about the murderer of Tapidi, that, that translator who tried to defend Vivian? Many years later, a new bishop succeeding Philip Strong, a new bishop came to New Guinea and he was dedicating a church, a new church that was being built. And the, the new church was called St. Lucian or Tapidi's Church. It was dedicated to Tapidi who had given his life for the gospel, standing up for this, for this missionary. And as the bishop was looking at this beautiful church, he was giving, being given a tour of it by a, an architect named Lucien. The bishop turned to the architect as they were admiring this church that was dedicated to this martyr. And he said, do you, do you know, has anybody ever discovered why or who killed Tapidi? And the architect said, I killed him. I killed Tapidi. But later, the gospel conquered me. And I was baptized. And when I was asked my baptismal name, I asked to be renamed Lucien. And this church is my expression of thanksgiving to him and to Christ for saving me. There's a statue to Lucien Tapidi installed over the west entrance of Westminster Abbey, put there in 1998 when this story was finally uncovered. As an enduring testimony that the devil doesn't win and he will not win. It's, a, it's just a, a little peek behind the curtain, a story given to us by the grace of God's providence to keep us encouraged to say, the devil will not win no matter what you lose for him now. It's all worth it because you're going to be on the winning side. What do we do in this interlude? What do we do when the world seems to be chaotic when your, when your society, when all that you had put hope in, when all of the people around you that you put confidence in, when all seems to be melting down and the, 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 the wrong seems off so strong, you must remember by faith, God is the ruler yet. Christ is conquering and will not cease to conquer until he makes all of his enemies his footstool and says to you and me, if we endure to the end, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's pray together. Oh, Lord Jesus, thank you for this assurance from Scripture. This Scripture shows us that you cared for these first century Christians who were discouraged and wondering if they were on the wrong side, and you spoke to them in language they could understand. We thank you that you have given us a whole Bible by which we can interpret it today and, in, and understand today the big idea 
that Jesus wins and we must not quit. Give us what we stand in need of. Encourage us. Give us the perseverance we need, not just to crawl to the end, but to proclaim the gospel boldly all the way to the end. In Jesus' name we pray. God's people said together.